Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. The majority of the brutal consequences of austerity are suffered by women. Meanwhile, rape convictions are down, domestic violence murders are up, and a bill on domestic violence is suspended in mid-air by Boris Johnson's suspension of Parliament. Unfortunately, local councils have been meekly passing on Tory cuts, rather than fighting the government for the funds to defend these essential women's services. But Socialist Party members and women's campaigners have been fighting back. In this episode of Socialism, recorded a few weeks before the present political crisis, we hear about the struggle to defend women from the cuts, in the home and at work, and how socialists think we can win the fight for women's liberation. Thanks for that, Scott. So this episode, we're going to be talking with Jane Nullist, who's the president of Coventry Trade Union Council. Hello, Jane. Hello. And we're also going to be speaking with Amy Cousins, who's a member of the Socialist Party in Leeds, working within the Women's Lives Matter campaign. Hi, Amy. Hi. Is it right that women have borne the brunt of austerity? Yeah, I mean, def- like, so there was a study done not so long ago that a figure around 89% had come directly from the pockets of women. 89% um, of cuts? Yeah, mm. so what we what it's meant by that is that because women are generally disproportionately in receipt of benefits, they're more likely to use services and use a lot of the things that are being stripped back from our welfare state, mm-hmm. that women therefore have disproportionately borne the brunt of austerity. Okay. Yeah, I think I think when you look at the moment, we're we're currently in the holiday period with schools. A lot of families now are struggling to feed the children, mm. and I I do believe that uh, when you look at the the eighty six percent of cuts paid predominantly to women, though that's been cut. Mm-hmm. But as Amy said, it's this indirect impact on men because women receive the benefits, mm-hmm. then men haven't got off lightly from this either. Sure. And I think that's, that's the problem. But when you look at, uh, at the impact on women, a lot of the services that they rely on, those have disappeared with austerity as well. So, you know, cuts to the NHS, cuts to, uh, you know, the, the childcare issues, but also their, their jobs... Mm. there's been this massive increase in low-pay, precarious, zero-hour contracts. And I think, you know, you find a lot of women have have picked up those jobs. And when you look at the impact of universal credit now on those women, Mm -hmm. it's exacerbating the problem so much that we have a real crisis Council spending has been cut Mm -hmm. as well, huge cuts, half of the money that they used to get has been cut by the government, so all of those services, there's no longer any um, like youth centres in a lot of places, so you know, the worry on women of what's happening to their children, Mm -hmm. that's, you know, that creates so much problem, so I think whilst the austerity cuts have impacted on men, I would say that it's much sharper on women. And uh, there have been studies. I was involved in a project in Coventry mm-hmm. on the cuts to women. And it was clear from the statistics that came out from that that, you know, even then, in back in 2011 this was, so quite early on, the impact of cuts there was 
quite profound on women. So why is it that women have borne the brunt of the attacks since the economic crisis? Well, I think to build on what Jane has discussed, it is women still disproportionately that are the primary carers of children, Mm -hmm. but also the primary carers of disabled relatives or elderly parents. And so you see that women are less able to access the economic job market in the same way as perhaps male workers that have not had this kind of dual oppression that women have um, faced, not just under capitalism, but have taken on that role through all class societies. And so because of this role, women are, like I said, less able to go out and work a full-time job and progress perhaps as a man can. But as, as Jane has said, by no means has austerity been an easy ride on particularly working class men. But it's just that women are not able to access the, the working market as men can. And, and what we see with Tory policy around austerity, and this has been particularly heightened with universal credit, is a complete attack on people that are not working. So universal credit's all about making work pay, but it completely ignores the fact that so many people are cut off from the jobs market and mm. so many people in receipt of benefits need to be legitimately, you know, the, the vast, vast majority of people on benefits are people that are receiving them because they can't access the jobs market um, and they can't work full time or they haven't been able to get into the, the jobs that actually pay enough to survive. And, and you see that the people that are being affected the most by universal credit, the, the vast majority of claimants, but also the vast majority of people that are being sanctioned are um, single mothers. Mm-hmm. And, and universal credit is not like a new attack. The benefit system was not perfect before universal credit, but it it continues to trap particularly mothers. So one of the clauses for the working conditionality is that once your child hits the age of two, you are expected to be looking for full-time work. But at the same time, it also has a clause that, yes, it will pay back 85% of your childcare costs, but you have to have those up front and you're not necessarily (laughs) guaranteed to get those back even. So you just see particularly... (laughs) single working class mothers just going through this impossible cycle of well I need to work otherwise I'm going to get sanctioned Mm -hmm. but I don't have the money to pay for childcare so I can't work and it so it's catch 22 yeah completely for for just you know not not just women but particularly single parents the majority of which are are women I think you asked why have women borne the, the brunt of the cuts that's right and It's been a political choice by this government in its various guises with a liberal and conservative government and then conservative government. It's been a political choice to shift a huge amount of money Mm -hmm. from the working class to the rich. And as we explained, women have, you know, have borne the brunt of austerity. So... You know, it didn't need to be like that. There's plenty of money in the society, but it was a political choice. And when you look at the rich list now, of the amount of money that the top earners have increased by, that could easily have gone into continuing to provide those resources for the working class. Mm. So... You know, it's the, the Tories up to their dirty work again in terms of cutting rather than spending. 
And I don't think that it was necessarily, like, austerity wasn't a plot by the, the Tories to disproportionately target women. But, okay. of course, that's what was always going to happen. Yeah. Whenever you cut benefits or anything to do with welfare support, it's always going to disproportionately affect women because of, as I've explained, their role. But what I think has been disappointing from you know, supposedly, like, opposition to the Tories around this from certain groups, um, particularly, you know, certain groups attached to Labour, is this idea of budgeting responsibly and this idea of, like, well, we we need to budget in a way... We need to make austerity cuts in a way that don't disproportionately impact women, as if that would even be possible, um, and not actually putting forward the argument, as Jane has just done, of, well... We just, you know, it is possible, it is completely possible to not make austerity cuts. They're not necessary. As we've seen, as Jane has said, austerity completely continued to decimate working class people's lives. We've actually seen the rich in Europe and across the world get richer. So it's not actually necessary. There's the money in, in society and this idea that we can just, we should just budget responsibly to not affect women as much is, is actually, well, it's, it's irresponsible, but it's just not possible. Mm. Um, austerity will always impact women more. But of course, that austerity flows from the need to defend the profits of big business yeah. and the very rich. So this economic imperative, mm. which particularly mm. flowed from the financial crisis 2007-2008, as you say, launched at the working class in general, but all groups within society who are particularly oppressed, like women, like black and Asian people, disabled people, LGBT plus people, who already have difficulty, as you put it, Amy, accessing the jobs market in the mm. same way as other sections of the working class, those people are going to be disproportionately affected by it. Now, domestic violence services are a particular area of devastation, isn't that right? Yeah, so what we've seen with domestic violence services is just really them disappearing from our towns and cities. So domestic violence services were not provision that was brought about with other welfare state support. It was really something that had to be fought for by women's movements, and that, and that was successful around kind of the 60s, the 70s. Okay. And what we've seen is, um, you know, kind of groups in society make it a responsibility of the state to a certain level to, prov to provide the support. And so, you know, councils in the last couple of decades particularly have, you know, have domestic violence provision in the form of refuges, but also community support services and, and, and therapy services. But what we've seen under austerity is that really councils making the decision to just cut whatever they don't deem is necessary. So councils have things that they have to fund by law that are statutory things they need to fund. Domestic violence services have historically fallen under what councils are not legally obliged to fund. So okay. whilst councils may say, yes, we you know, want to fund these services, domestic violence is a, a really important issue, rah, 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 a lot of councils have then gone ahead and either just completely cut the service or what is also quite a popular tactic of councils is to decommission services that are specialist women's services or specialist women BAME services, which provide Sorry, specialist women. BAME, so um, black, Asian, minority, ethnic services, yeah. which are really important because obviously some women from different cultures can't speak the language. They perhaps have culturally different issues around domestic violence. And so specific services have arisen. But what councils are doing under the context of cuts 
is decommission these services and provide the same amount of funding to a larger, more generic provider. Like in some constituencies, they've cut a women's refuge and they've just funded a general homeless shelter okay and but also with cutting a women's refuge it's not just a place to sleep mm-hmm. it's it provides therapy it provides all different kinds of really specialist support so you know essentially women are, are losing these specific services and it's not about saying that we don't need services for men or, or different genders of people or lgbt specific services but it's about saying that there is money for everyone actually mm. to have all the services they need and councils are choosing to cut these services mm. I was a director of a domestic violence service charity and I know one of the issues around domestic violence resources is unequal across the country so some areas like Amy's talking about you know real sort of cuts and that in Coventry there still isn't enough provision to meet the full needs but it's much much better than some of the other areas sure and I think if you look at if you analyze now there's a lot more homeless women on the streets now and if you look at uh, some of the reasons around why they are homeless it's as a direct result of domestic violence Mm. which is you know very very concerning but I think the other big issue is around mental health and a lot of these organizations find it very difficult to cope with the level of mental health issues that some women present with so Mm -hmm. we need more specialized services we need much more resource put into that absolutely so how have we been fighting back against the onslaught on domestic violence services so the women's lives matter campaign that i have been involved with started in south yorkshire Mm -hmm. where the last women's aid the last service with the kind of specialist stamp of women's aid on it was being cut and that was in Doncaster Mm -hmm. and so Women's Lives Matter was set up by staff members volunteers of the service but also a lot of clients and ex-clients and members of the community to defend that service and it was actually successful in 2016 it was a Labour council that removed the funds and they actually won some small funds to to get the service back. The campaign did? The campaign, yeah, Women's Lives Matter in Doncaster. And since then, we faced another attack on on the service that was set up subsequently in Doncaster called South Yorkshire Women's Aid, where the council funded it for one year and then said that because they were cutting the whole of the voluntary sector, wouldn't be continuing to fund that past the year. And because we'd seen the lack, the loss of the service previously, we knew what that really meant to women in the community particularly. And so we've, we were a part of the campaign to save South Yorkshire Women's Aid. But also what we really tried to do and we're, we're trying to do within the Women's Lives Matter campaign is to take it from the single issue of just a cut to one service. Mm-hmm. Because what it's actually about, these attacks, is whilst it might be happening to a service in a particular council area this is happening countrywide it's happening across the UK and it's because of austerity and what we are campaigning for is to say that actually councils don't have to make these cuts and that there are alternative budgets they could make where they don't need to, to cut and so as part of the Women's Lives Matter campaign we do raise the need to you know obviously combat domestic violence but we also talk about how resources are massively important within that about how we need these services and about how councils can fund these services sufficiently and 
you know, right now. And so one of our key demands is that local councils, particularly Labour councils, set up budgets based on need and that they use from their reserve money to not implement any cuts, particularly to these services, but actually to any service. Because if you've done any work with domestic violence, you'll know that someone going through domestic violence, they do need a place they can escape to, they do need therapy, but they also need a house to move on to, Mm. they need a secure job with a good wage to move on to, they need childcare. And so it's a multifaceted issue. We can't just be campaigning the saviour of one service, we're a campaign that it's about raising the need to challenge all austerity, not just defend what we have because that's not good enough, but actually to fight for things that that women and working class people need. And so our core demands actually are around free childcare, sufficiently funded housing stock, affordable rents and things like this. Okay. And, and I think I would say that we've got a really incredible history in the Socialist Party previously the militant mm-hmm. in terms of the a the fight that we had in Liverpool where we actually fought the government and got more money mm. for all of those things that Amy said but also the campaign against domestic violence which was something quite innovative and absolutely crucial in the battle against domestic violence because one in four women suffer from domestic violence at some point in their lives that is an incredible figure so you know the campaign has to continue to fight this and this linking up with other areas of attacks as well the question of a living wage for example mm. and linking it to the ability to use not just reserves of course but also borrowing powers and particularly to mobilize the trade union movement to fight back to win that money back yeah. from the central government the Liverpool City Council of 1983-87, which you mentioned there, is a model which we can look to for that. Mm. Now, of course, the ongoing oppression, which stretches back a long way, and we should have another podcast actually discussing the roots of the oppression of women, mm. but the, the ongoing oppression of women in the domestic sphere is only one angle which has been exacerbated in the period of austerity. Another is the workplace, the attacks on women in the workplace. Isn't, mm. isn't that right? It is, Yes. But I think what we ought to say is there have been some mag- magnificent struggles. The Glasgow Women's Strike on Equal Pay, mm. that's been incredible. So that was 8,000 women, wasn't it? Yeah. Joined by when, male bin workers as well. Yeah, and I think what we're seeing is that uh, women are moving to the fore in terms of fighting against low pay, against exploitation, and that they're being supported by male workers as well when they do take action and I think the big issue the big frustration around it all is the role of the TUC Mm. because I think what we need desperately now is to coordinate this and to ensure that you know more workers join in in those battles because what's been shown by the disputes, the home care workers in Birmingham, Mm -hmm. another great example, again, with the bin workers in Birmingham supported, is that if you stand up and fight, you've got a good chance of winning. Mm. If you don't, you won't win. And what we're seeing in terms of some of the victories that we have across the trade union movement is that where workers get the support, and especially the women workers, where they get wider support, they can win. So the Trade Union Congress, which is the official leadership of all the trade unions in this country, 
unfortunately, as is its tradition, has not generalised out these magnificent heroic struggles of workers, particularly women workers, against attacks on pay, on terms and conditions in the workplace. What can trade unionists do to push this fight forward? What kind of demands, what kind of struggle needs to happen? Well, I think if we look at the National Shop Stewards Network Mm -hmm. and what that stands for, that is a bottom-up approach Mm -hmm. linking these strikes. Sign up to the bulletin, get get the bulletin, because you'll learn about all those uh, struggles that are taking place. We need to make sure that we send solidarity to those those disputes financial solidarity as well is most important and at the TUC later on on September the 8th we've got a, a lobby of the TUC which is very important that's an opportunity where we can put some pressure on the TUC mm. to say you have it within your power to start to join up these strikes to show that you know where where workers do stand up and fight, they can win, and that's most important. I mean, there are so many issues now that workers are fighting on about pay, about conditions, about contracts. We've now got the ASDA workers that have been presented with a a contract which basically cuts their own pay. Yeah, Why would six. anybody want to sign that contract? Mm. That's ridiculous. Those workers need to be supported and, you know, to come out on strike if necessary. Mm. A lot of disputes never actually reach a strike because the the management back down. Mm. So, you know, workers need, women workers especially need to be in a trade union and that trade union needs to be fighting to support them. I think it's really important the message of joining a trade union and the importance of trade unions, particularly for perhaps young women entering the workplace that haven't known a history of trade unions being prominent in social issues. I think mm-hmm. trade unionism is is back on the rise, but it, you know, it, previously they haven't been as predominant. But I think what the important message is to convey is they still organise over 6 million workers in the UK. They yeah. are incredibly strong bases to fight back against not just workplaces and, and our organisations and businesses that we're working for, but also national government policy mm-hmm. like austerity. And that's why we find it incredibly important not just to organise workers through trade unions to have the power to, to fight back on individual workplace issues but also national issues that affect workers but also to link women's issues in particular with the trade unions because it's only really through the joining of these social issues and workers and actually a unity across all ordinary people all working class people that are massively organized in trade unions that will will we even be able to achieve the change necessary. And that kind of political change which as you said Jane the militant, now the Socialist Party, helped spearhead in the trade unions with mm. the, the CATV, the Campaign Against Domestic Violence. That can be achieved again, and we have said repeatedly that all mm. it would require would be a significant mobilisation from the trade unions, and this extraordinarily weak government could be pushed out of office, opening up the possibility of an anti-austerity government. 
Now, trade unionists who are interested in getting the NSSM bulletin or in helping with the work of the NSSM, participating in the work of the NSSM, you can sign up at shopstewards.net and you can also pass motions to affiliate the National Shop Stewards Network through your branches or through your national trade union conferences and we would encourage you to do that to help to build the rank and file movement to hold the leaders to account and to push that movement forward. But on this question of political action, Caroline Lucas, the Green MP, recently proposed an explicitly all-female cabinet in response to the Tories' Brexit crisis. Are men the problem? No, absolutely no. not. <laughs> well, I'm pleased to hear you say that. <laughs> I mean, it's the system. The system that's the problem. I mean, how ridiculous. I, I couldn't believe that she had the gall to do that. But this is all about keeping Jeremy Corbyn out, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, we are seeing these arguments now, aren't we, in terms of a national unity government. And that's because the crisis is in, there's such a crisis. Mm. Jeremy Corbyn obviously would be very good, but even the programme that he's putting forward is not really sufficient to change the problems that we've been talking about earlier. It needs a lot more than that. But Jeremy Corbyn and a Labour government based on the programme that they're putting forward be a hell of a lot better than a Caroline Lucas or women. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think she thinks she's playing on some quite popularistic arguments that are floating about in society, particularly after the Me Too movement and, and things like that. But I think even young women coming up and identifying as feminists do go further than just to say men are the problem. They might perhaps go further to say, well, it's socialisation of men that are the problem, but sure. perhaps can't go further than that and point to, well, actually it's, the, it's a system based upon class mm-hmm. that has embedded these attitudes over thousands of years. But I think if you really unpick what she's saying, it's actually incredibly gender deterministic uh, itself. <laughs> because... <laughs> because what she's essentially doing is kind of pitting men against women, saying men are the problem mm. and we need women to solve the problem, or at least in this context we do. And what does that really solve? Okay, so we'll create a society where women are in the leadership and then what, we'll just oppress men? I mean, it, it, sort of, um, <laughs> it sort of dooms us to this whole cycle of oppression. And I think, you know, as socialists, we're incredibly optimistic that we know that there are, a future of socialism can be achieved where, you know, no one has to suffer oppression based on gender or anything else and you know it's like she'd rather she'd rather say that all women should be in the cabinet than actually she'd rather say that than admit the ideas that Jeremy Corbyn's putting forward (laughs) you know I mean she she plays herself as being on the left but she's really again like Jane said she's shot herself in the foot because what women need what working class women need in the UK desperately is an end to austerity and a massive injection of funds into the welfare state and that would be a real solution for women rather than having women tokenistically in leadership that are not going to put these things forward. Ironically, the two female leaders that we've had have been Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May. (laughs) (laughs) They don't say much for... They've been responsible for, you know, lots of cuts and attacks on women. And it tells us something as well, doesn't it, about the limitations of green politics, Mm. that this left-wing firebrand woman MP, so as she's been presented anyway, Caroline Lucas, is perfectly willing to Mm. form a government with 
the most reactionary representatives mm. of capitalism with the Tories, with the Liberal Democrats, with the Blairite wing of Labour, mm. but she would not conscience having a woman such as Diane Abbott, mm. uh, a left-winger and supporter of Jeremy Corbyn in her cabinet. But somebody like Laura Pidcock, and, sure, yeah. you know, who's who stood up and spoken very well on some of these issues and that. So, you know, she wouldn't even sort of look at look at her. I think, you know, to have Jo Swinson as well, when you look at her record, mm. if you look at her voting record on cuts mm-hmm. that, ha- as we've talked about, have impacted on women, absolutely atrocious. You know, the role that she played in that conservative, liberal government, yeah. Lib Dem government, was at the start of all these attacks on with austerity, absolutely dreadful. So... So we can see from some of the descriptions which we've heard in this episode that it's capitalism, it's the profit system which is underneath all of these attacks on women at home, at work, in society at large. How would a socialist society prevent these attacks though? I don't think what we're saying is that you know, come the day of socialism or even in the first couple of years that we would see a complete abolition of sexism and, and misogynistic attitudes but Mm. what we are saying is that socialism is the only real basis to to begin to achieve that and that that doesn't mean that we don't take up any of the issues that women face in the here and now because you know there are important gains that can be won and need to be won for women in the here and now but what we're saying is that a system that is not based upon profit that is not based upon class and that doesn't need to pit different sections of the working class against each other Mm. to uphold itself. We're saying that that system, the system of socialism, is the only real basis for for oppression to be eradicated. In the long term? Yes. But I think if you look at the Bolshevik in 1917, Mm. that actually they did do some things very, very quickly. And Mm. a lot of those things Mm. were to relieve the problems of of women. Mm. I mean, imagine what... A socialist government just initially could do with the resources that the the Tories and the capitalist class currently have. I mean, if they can find a billion pound or however much they found to make links with the DUP, we could find the money really um, quite quickly to to mass build council housing, mm-hmm. to to raise the minimum wage, to fund services and and NHS. So. You know, what we're talking about is that we, yeah, like like the Bolsheviks did. I mean, one of the, the first thing that the Bolsheviks did was make divorce much more accessible to women so that women could leave abusive or unhappy marriages and, and it wasn't deemed as this kind of taboo, illegal thing anymore. So, I mean, massive change could be made very quickly if we had those kind of resources. But I think it's important that what we're talking about is in our, our country, but we have to look at the impacts in other countries sure because i think we couldn't just survive as an island we, we could do lots of good things but we need to spread that out it mm. needs to be an international movement that's most important because the way that our economies are so intertwined now that's absolutely crucial because the problems that we're suffering in our country are the same the world over. Mm. You look at the same exploitation of women, the same problems that they're facing. To more extent or lesser, people are, are suffering the same same problems. 
So some of those material measures which the Bolsheviks took alongside the social measures of campaigning against sexism, which they did, they ran entire propaganda mm. campaigns of legalising abortion, but the, the measures like in implementing communal laundries and restaurants to try mm. and lift women out of the burden of domestic labour, mm. they were the first society to do anything like that and yeah. achieved enormous results, in it, like you say, in a very short space of time. And unfortunately, due to the failure of other revolutionary movements in Europe and around the world shortly afterwards, Russia did become isolated. And that was part of the basis for the development of the Stalinist bureaucracy, which started to roll back, actually, a lot of those gains for women and for the working class. Now, we've spoken a lot about some of the demands which we're putting forward to advance the situation of women today, how the trade unions have a crucial role to play in that fight, how do we think women should organise to fight back against their oppression today? Because there's different ideas about that. What do you think? I think that there is in the, you could call it a new wave or a new interest globally on fighting back on the issues that women face. I think there's this idea coming forward of anti-capitalist feminism, which, you know, is, is a nice change from the kind of um, postmodernist thinking that women just need to get themselves advanced in the workplace. You know, it's, it's, it's at least taking a collective perspective on the need for women to unite in action. And the women's strikes have been a positive step forward. Mm. But what, what we're not necessarily seeing from these movements is the conclusions as to, to how we can actually win women's liberations and so they often leave themselves limited to kind of saying that well we're anti-catalyst and they have progressive demands around what needs to be achieved to liberate women but not how they don't seem to link these movements on a wider basis and draw in a broad mass of people and often what we're seeing is they're limited to kind of recruiting already won over people, already people that are identifying as feminists. Mm -hmm. And what we say is that where women are galvanised to fight back on issues of their own oppression, they should seek to link with all sections of the working class okay. and to broaden these campaigns out. Because ultimately, it's only on that mass basis that well, reform can be achieved, really. But to go further than reform and say, well, we don't just want to win back old gains or we don't just want to defend the crumbs that we already have but we want on a mass basis with all sections of the working class to win a world that we can control and that doesn't oppress us. I think the question that you asked about how should they organise to fight back against mm. their oppression, I don't think it's through the Women's Equality Party <laughs> or I think it's, women can't do this on their own. It's nonsense. What you have to do is find your allies mm -hmm. and that will include men. And I think that you have to, as we've talked about earlier, join a trade union. Mm -hmm. I think ideally come and join the Socialist Party, yeah, come yeah. and join us in the Socialist Party. I think it states in your workplace, you join together, you identify what do you need and you have to fight for it. Mm. It's not going to be easy because those rich people, those 1%, don't want to give up their wealth. Mm. But the working class, the 99% of people in this, this country, including the middle class as well, incidentally, mm. they're the ones that have created the wealth. Mm. So it's ours. <laughs> but we have to join together and have a determined fight, organised fight, 
to win that back? So while it's completely natural for women who are experiencing oppression and looking for a way to fight back to think, yes, what I need is an organisation of all women from top to bottom, say, from um, Theresa May and people like her all the way down to ordinary working class women. Of course, Theresa May and her banker husband and so on will have very different interests fundamentally to the majority of women. And while Theresa May no doubt also experiences the oppression of women, of course, she experiences sexism, there's no question about Mm. that, she and her class are not capable of ending the social system which generates sexism. So it's that class organisation which women of any background, if they want to see an end to sexism, has to throw their lot in with the working class and fight for socialism. So now, as usual, we're going to hear from some of the latest workers' struggles and news and campaign stories that have taken place over the past few days. Here again with me is Scott Jones from the Socialist Newspaper Editor's Department. Hi, Scott. Hi, Rod. So what's been happening in the world of workers' struggle? Well, our paper this week is ram-packed full of different disputes and articles on what's going on in in the workplaces, in the trade unions, Mm -hmm. including a very important article by Marion Lloyd, a statement by her. She's a Socialist Party member in the Civil Servants Union PCS. Mm-hmm. And she's running to be the new General Secretary in that trade union. Okay. She's standing on a programme of fighting for a general election to kick out the Tories, mm-hmm. to get Corbyn-led government elected. And then industrially, she's fighting for militant action to end the cuts, closures and job losses that we've seen in the public services. Okay, so what's the schedule then for the election? So she's trying to get nominations at the moment to be on the ballot paper, and they end on the 14th of October. Okay. Marion herself, she works in the government's business department, the EIS. Yeah, yeah, or BIS for short. Okay. And actually, they're catering and cleaning workers in London are on indefinite strike action at the moment, fighting to win the living wage, London living wage, of £10.55 an hour. Okay. And we carry an interview with one of those strikers, one of those workers, Joseph, in the paper this week, who says, our strikers involved pickets and protests, and we've had great support from other trade unions and socialists. For these two weeks, the porters, security and reception staff are on strike with us, picketing every day, which is a real boost to everybody. And he says, sends a message to Boris Johnson and the government by saying that they don't care about people like us. They don't do anything for the poor people. Mm. And they've actually won a tentative agreement with the bosses on conceding the London living wage. Okay. But they're still fighting and still on strike to make that reality. Very wise. Don't give up until you've won. Definitely. And what's been happening in the universities then? So university staff in the University and College Union, the UCU, they're currently voting on strike action in two ballots. Okay. Both close on the 30th of October. The first is about pensions. Mm-hmm. Regular readers of our paper will know that there's been strike action previously on that issue. Staff currently contribute 8.8% of their salaries. Last year's strike forced employers to set up a panel to investigate the situation. But now it looks like they're going to ignore this and try and make staff pay more for their current pensions. So 9. they pay 6%. more, but they get the same amount. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So we've got a UCU rep, Lucy, who's writing in the paper this week, and she says, this shows that the bosses can't be trusted and the sustained struggle is needed. Mm. What's the second vote about? The second vote is about pay, pay pay-related issues. So staff actually voted earlier this year on on this. But although almost 70% voted for strike action in England, Scotland and Wales, it missed the Tory government's imposed 50% turnout threshold, which is part of the anti-trade union laws. Mm -hmm. The strike has only got 41% in the ballot. Okay, so that's a clear majority who want to take the action. Exactly, yeah. But because of the Tory anti-trade union laws, it, it, it didn't take place, but... The UCU members and university workers are now fighting to make that threshold this time to take strike action on both pay and pensions. 
And there's a mini strike wave going on in Britain at the moment, isn't there? So there's little actions taking place everywhere. That's right, yeah. Including civil service workers and the Driver and Vehicle Standards Agency in Nottingham and Swansea. Mm-hmm. There's a report of the BA strike in British Airways by pilots there. Mm-hmm. As well as struggles going on in Asda, there's been protests outside stores over the imposition of a new contract there. And we've also got a big article by a former bus driver about workload and fatigue and, and, and various issues going on on the buses. Great. Yeah. Okay, on the news and campaigns. Mm-hmm. So, Sajid Javid, Boris Johnson's Chancellor, he's promised £13 billion more spending, apparently. Well, he has. You might have missed it, given the historic crisis of all the institutions of British capitalism taking place. Nonetheless, Labour has pointed out that the Tories have slashed Britain's annual expenditure by £47 billion in real terms compared to the 2010 pre-austerity budget. In fact, if you factor in this year's inflation and population growth since 2010, the value of public services the Tories have stolen from ordinary people could be higher still. But anyway, the £13 billion Sajid Jawad has promised makes up less than a third of that. So even if the Tories are to be believed, this is not the end of austerity and the Tories are not to be believed. Now, coincidentally, while the Tories have stolen £47 billion from our yearly public budget, Britain's richest thousand people added almost £48 billion to their wealth last year alone. Jeremy Corbyn has a programme which could start to reverse austerity and privatisation. If he fights for it and links it to socialist measures to take economic power out of the hands of the capitalists, like nationalising the banks and big businesses, for example... The Socialist Party says what we need now is a general election, not more parliamentary delaying tactics from the Blairites and the Liberals to prevent a change in government. And we also need the trade union leaders to force the question on funding by leading industrial action to win more and on the government by naming the date for a mass demonstration linked to the threat of strikes if necessary, demanding a general election and socialist policies. Now, you can hear more about this, more detail on the Westminster crisis and how the workers' movement can end it in the favour of working class and young people on our last podcast, that's episode 38, Government Meltdown, What Now?, with Socialist Party Deputy General Secretary Hannah Sell. Meanwhile, pensioners in Leeds have taken the initiative against one more austerity measure. Yes, the pensioners, trade union groups and community campaigns in Leeds occupied the offices of the BBC in that city. They were protesting against the withdrawal of free TV licences for over 75s, which is linked to the government cuts to the BBC's national funding. Now, they only intended originally to hand in a petition and then hold a rally outside, but when management kept them waiting and waiting to hand in that letter of protest, they quite rightly took matters into their own hands and occupied the offices. Now, we say that TV licences are a form of regressive taxation in reality, so a better arrangement might be full public ownership and public funding of the major TV and filmmaking companies, with democratic governing bodies composed of elected representatives from the workforce, from audiences and from a socialist government, and guaranteed democratic access to facilities and broadcasting for minority viewpoints according to the support in society. And people in Coventry are angry about a proposed congestion charge? So they are. A hundred people packed out a local meeting opposing the charge in a small room above a pub. Now, of course, air quality and climate change are critical issues, but punishing workers who can't afford electric cars or whatever is not the answer to that. Sure. So rather than maintaining what currently in Coventry, they've got nine competing private bus fares. Nine. Nine. The Socialist Party says instead public transport should be publicly owned and subsidised to provide free or cheap green travel for everyone, not profits for the bus buses. And locally in Coventry, a Socialist Party campaign petition is now at 9,000 signatures. When it gets to 15,000, 
Coventry City Council is obliged to hold a public debate on the issue. And Socialist Party members have not just been taking part in these campaigns, but supporting international solidarity protests as well? Yes, we have. So in Leicester, for example, we joined the Kashmiri protest against the attacks on Kashmir's democratic rights by India's right-wing government, pointing out, for example, the huge power showed by the historic 150 million strong general strike in India this January. And meanwhile, in central London, we joined a West Papuan protest outside the Indonesian embassy, and this was against the Indonesian state's repression of the West Papuan independence movement. We support in the Socialist Party and the Committee for a Workers' International a fight for an independent socialist West Papua and an appeal to the Indonesian trade unions to join the struggle against their common enemy, Indonesian capitalism. Thanks, James. Thank you, Scott. We want you to send us recordings from picket lines and campaigns and reports of your activity. We also want your questions, comments and ideas for future episodes. Email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk and help us spread the word by giving us a five-star review and subscribing so you don't miss out. Don't forget to recommend us to your co-workers and friends too. Socialism, the podcast, has no wealthy backers. We survive thanks to the financial support of ordinary working class and young people, and we're proud of the political independence that gives us. If you'd like to hear more, help us take the fight to big business, you can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. If you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for, we need you. Join our fight for a winner's strategy in the Labour and Trade Union movement and join the Socialist Party now. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. And if you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party. This week we heard from Jane Nellist and Amy Cousins speaking to James Ivans along with me, Scott Jones. Till next time, solidarity.